Well, good morning and welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, we are in part three of the series that we're calling God Is Not. And the idea behind the series is to help you uh, uh, prevent or also maybe survive a spiritual crisis. Because oftentimes is the case is that when you're going through something, and if I'm invited into that and, and we're sitting like across the coffee table or something, there, there's often uh, a crisis that is brought on by a belief about God that he never actually said was about him. So we may be believing in a God that actually doesn't exist. And so we're taking a look at some of these, these common uh, fallacies about these beliefs that we have in God to sort of prevent or survive our next, your next spiritual crisis. And so last week we took a look at how God is not cold-hearted. Remember we had that line in there, right, about uh, when we're wondering, does God care? We have an empty crave that says that he does. So last week was, is God, or God is not cold-hearted. Today, God is not a warm fuzzy, which I think is just like this awesome picture. If you're wondering about a warm fuzzy, it's, it's heading back at our animal encounter and just holding a little puppy. Like that is a warm fuzzy right there. That feeling that you get at this animal encounter with a puppy or kitten or whatever. And it's just like, just emanates out of you from somewhere starting right about here, right? And it just like gives you this tingling sensation all throughout. It's that, it's that warm fuzzy feeling when you hold a little puppy. A warm fuzzy feeling also could come from you and when, when, you know, she says something like, oh, every time I see you is the best day in my whole life. Every moment is the best moment I've ever had. And then he says, oh, warm fuzzies, right? Like, like that's the warm fuzzy feeling that we get. And that's not a bad thing. I don't want you to leave here and be like, man, that Dirk is cold. I mean, what a wet blanket. Uh, he, he doesn't like puppies. I'm like, no, no, okay. If if you're holding the puppy and it's drinking too much water, you might have a different warming sensation on your hands. But like, no, I don't want you to think that, that I'm just like this cold, wet blanket kind of guy, this warm, fuzzy feeling that you get. That's not a bad feeling. I, that, in fact, I would say that is a God-given feeling, even when it's about him. I mean, I've had that experience before. I remember being at a, at a youth uh, camp, sleepaway camp, and I was like 15 years old, and I was overcome with this like warm, fuzzy God, God's presence kind of, of feeling. And, and I remember I was like 15-year-old boy surrounded by other 15-year-old boys, and I'm overcome with emotion of the presence of God in my life. And I'm like, he loves me. He really loves me. And I'm like crying uncontrollably. I'm sobbing, right? And everybody else is just like, what is wrong with with this kid. I was kind of new in the youth group at times, so like that didn't help. But like, I didn't even care. I didn't even care that everybody was, I didn't know what they were thinking. I didn't care what they were thinking because, because God was like so real and so present in my life, being overcome with emotion at that moment, embarrassing myself, whatever. I didn't care. And some people would, would look at that and say, well, that's, that's like a warm, fuzzy sense tingly sensation maybe and maybe that is a gift of God exactly what I needed in my life at that time some of you have had that feeling before sometimes we even make the mistake 
of swapping what we know about God to be that warm, fuzzy sensation. And we go like, go, we go ahead chasing it from like warm, fuzzy feeling of God to warm, fuzzy feeling of God. And then at times when he, when it feels like he's pulling his presence away from us, when it feels like he's abandoning us, when we don't feel him at all, we're left like reeling back. We're asking ourselves this question on the screen behind me right now. We're asking is, what do I do? And this is the question for this morning. What do I do when I can't feel God? What do I do when I can't feel God? When I'm no longer getting that like warm, fuzzy sensation, kind of tingling, radiating out from somewhere right around here. What do I do then? And so I just kind of want to clarify something this morning is that how many of you like me at any point in your life, at any point, have ever like felt, would you say, would feel the presence of God in your life? Just go ahead and put your hand up. If you've ever felt tons of people, awesome, you can put them down. Now, new question, how many of you have felt that like already this week, let's say, Far, far, far fewer. So I just want you to put your hands down. Thank you for playing along. I, I just want to like point out. I want to point out what that means for some of you who are like, listen, listen. It has been a long time since I've felt close to God. Is there something wrong? I want you just to take a minute, kind of look around at the people next to you and go, I am not alone. I think one of the key takeaways from this morning is that if you don't feel the presence of God, you can look around the room right now and only a handful of people put their hands up about feeling that closeness to God already this week and go, listen, the vast majority of people in the room who have felt God before are not currently feeling close to God right now and just say to yourself, I am not alone. In fact, you have some pretty good company if, uh, if you've heard of, um, if you haven't heard of Mother Teresa in the past, let me just explain. First of all, welcome from the rock that you've been hiding under for your whole life. <laughs> welcome to the outside. It's good. So Mother Teresa, right? She's like just this near official saint, but unofficial saint status because she gives up like her life becoming a nun and, and, and serving the poorest of the poor, the, the literal classified untouchables in Calcutta, India and serving them. And she's devoting her life to them. And I'm like, listen, if anybody is going to feel the presence of God, it's somebody who seems to live like right next to him because he's that real in her life. But yet after Mother Teresa passes away, I just want to read this. This is in her personal memoir. This is in her diary. She writes, Lord, my God, you have thrown me away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. No, no one alone. This is Mother Teresa, right? And she's writing about how there's these, this season in her life where she is just completely and utterly alone. Uh, if you were with us last week, you might remember, in, uh, I, I quoted C.S. Lewis, which is another hero of the faith who's quoted a lot. And the reason why I did that is because every preacher has to have 10 C.S. Lewis quotes a year, otherwise they'll pull our license away. <laughs> that's, that's mostly not true. But, but like C.S. Lewis, he's just so quotable. The way that he captures things, the way that he puts things, it's just, it's so perfect. So I'm going to send another one coming at you. This is what C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote in uh, one of the most painful times in his life, he cries out to God and he got what he described as a door 
slammed in my face in the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence. If there are no lights in the windows, it might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. Why is God so very absent of help in time of trouble? I just want to say one more time. You are not alone. Whatever, whatever valley you're in, you are not alone. There's one guy, though, who's going who's gonna to teach us about this and teach us what to do that is, I think, going to be helpful. But, but first, we have to just realize just how dark this is going to go. Um, if you were to take the Bible, and this is how a lot of us figure out our daily devotions, and you just like open it up, right? And just like, God, speak to me now. And you just kind of open it up to the middle. Chances are it's going to fall in what's like the book of Psalms. It's like the middle, it's 150 chapters, 150 songs or Psalms that were written. So it's kind of a long one. And if you take a look at all of those Psalms, you'd find about 70% of them are what's classified as lament Psalms. In other words, they're classified as like angry angsty songs. They're protest psalms, but they're not written like, like to the people around. They might be about the people around, about what's happening inside, but they're written. The unique vantage point of these is that 70% of them, of these 150, are written to God. So, so like the, the primary like address is like, God, no, 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 this is your fault. Sometimes Christians debate whether or not God allows something to hap- uh, bad to happen or he like caused something bad to happen. And it's like, listen, when you have an omnipotent, all-powerful God, what is the difference? And so the psalmists are writing in these 70% of these lament psalms. They're lifting it up in every one of them. It's to God because ultimately the buck stops there. And every single one of them, to a T, every single one of them has this twist at the very last moment or maybe two-thirds of the way through. Every single one of them has this like, all of this garbage is happening, all this stuff is present in my life. And then there's this twist where just at the very end before it wraps up, there's like a, but God showed up. And this is the hope that I have. There's a twist for good, for hope, for light, for something good to come out of all of this. There's a twist at the end. So like Psalm 13 of David, it's a pretty good one, where David is writing, again, to God. He's like, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. But I will trust in his unfailing love, in his salvation, You see, there's this twist of hope, of goodness, of light that comes in the last few verses. All of these lament psalms have that twist, have that turn, except one. If you look at the Bible, or at least the book of Psalms, as like a physical topography, a physical terrain, this psalm, a physical terrain with with mountains, with valleys, this psalm, would be a deep valley, a trench. This psalm could be the lowest place in the entire story of God, the Bible. Outside of the death of God, Christ on the cross. This psalm is bleak and it doesn't turn. And so I think this psalm is a perfect place to go when we ask the question, what do I do when I can't feel God? 
We're going to go to Psalm 88 right now. You can follow along in the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. By the way, if you like those, you can just go ahead and take it home. We give them away all the time. We love that. The words are going to be on the screen behind me too. And on the Bible app is also encouraged. Psalm 88, it starts off in an unusual place for us at least this morning because typically if you're like looking at a Bible in my Bible here, you would see that Psalm 88 and, and a lot of Psalms, they have like this microscopic, you know, writing in italics that you're going to get those readers out or a magnifying glass to be able to read. Typically, we just kind of skip on over that. Today, we're not going to. Uh, today, we read it. And I, I want to show you why. There's some good stuff in here. This, so we're going to start off reading the microprint, Psalm 88 in big, in big letters, um, a song a psalm of the sons of Korah, sounds like a great band name, for the director of music, according to Mehalath, Lenoff, awesome, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite, and then it moves on and it gets into the content of the song itself in verse 1. But the point of that is that in many Bibles, in the Hebrew Bible, it's not moving on from that and starting off in verse 1. The point of why I read that for you is because in the Hebrew Bibles, the Bibles that follow the tradition of the rabbis and the synagogues and all the way back to this time, that line that I just read is marked as verse 1. And what we would call our verse 1, they mark as verse 2. They counted it as Bible, right? They counted it as the first verse. And so there's this tradition that even though the numbers were included much, much later, there's this tradition of understanding that even though we don't really count it so much as Bible, as Psalm 88, it's probably the case that when Jesus picked up a scroll and started reading, he would consider those words as part of the psalm. And so I just want to like point out for you this morning that maybe there's something worth reading embedded within that I think there is. We, we break it down. We know what Psalm 88. Okay, they're all numbers. This is 88. A song. Sure, I got that. Sons of Korah. We can come back to that. Director of music. Sure. According to Mehaloth and Lenoth, that is probably a Hebrew expression for saying a song of affliction. And after we read it, it'll be like, well, that makes sense. Okay. A mascal. We're not really sure what that is, but it's included a lot. So it's, it's some, kind of, some kind of literary or musical term that was used. It's a mascal. I don't know what exactly. We're still working on that. Uh, Heman of Heman the Ezraites. Okay, so sons of Korah and Heman are probably going to be important. So let's, let's fill that out there a little bit more. Sons of Korah is, uh, as mentioned, like awesome, awesome band name. I went to my research database. I Googled it. And... Uh, <laughs> I found it is actually a band name. They're touring Australia currently. Uh, it's a Christian like rock band. But anyway, that's beside the point, not what they're talking about there. Uh, Korah was actually Moses' cousin. So Moses, like, let my people go, Pharaoh, you know, the Egypt, the dead man thing, right? the, the, the Red Sea, that Moses, he had a cousin named Korah. And Korah got in his head that it was time to to take this body, to take this group of people in an entirely different direction. And so Korah starts a rebellion. They called it Korah's Rebellion because they're about as creative as we are at naming things. And so Korah, he got about 250 of his people together to overthrow Moses and like take leadership away from Moses into the hands of Korah, his cousin. But before that happens, the story goes that God poured out fire from heaven to consume all of these people. And so they're toast. It's a little dad humor right in there, right? And so they're no more. 
They're gone. They're out of the picture. However, it says that the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, were not harmed. They weren't a part of the rebellion and they weren't harmed as a result of it. But you could understand how the people were a little reluctant to give them swords and spears and train them in the army. Instead, they gave them tambourines and flutes and put them in the band. And that's probably, in all likelihood, why they got into the field of work that they were into. They became actual temple worship leaders. That was their assigned role. And they were called, as an awesome band name that it is, the Sons of Korah. Because they were the ones in the band leading the music in the temple for all of Israel. At that time, it was a tabernacle. Later on, when they had a physical structure, it was the temple. So this is like the Sons of Korah. They are the band, the worship band. And then we've got Heman, the Israelite. Heman is not to be confused with the breakout hit 80s cartoon, He-Man and his accompaniment, She-Ra. Okay, He-Man and She-Ra, different people. They were the masters of the universe, the defenders of the realm of Eternia, keepers of the secret of, Ka of Gray Skull from the evil forces of Skeletor. Totally different story. But as a, we got some 80s kids in here, a little bit, right on, right on. Yeah, appreciate that. As a side note, like the protagonist, He-Man and She-Ra, like this is just lazy writing. It would never work today. Anyway, okay, so not them. He-Man, the Ezraelite, was an extraordinarily wise person in his time. Uh, elsewhere in the scripture, it says that he was actually compared to Solomon in terms of wisdom. Now, Solomon was found to be wiser than Heman, but the very fact that there was a comparison to made, I mean, this guy was known in the land. In fact, this is not the only psalm attributed to him. This guy cranked out some of the music. He was what you could describe as like the worship pastor of Israel, the whole nation of Israel at the time. And so I just like kind of want to build that out a little. So you got Heman, who was setting the, the musical tone for all of Israel. He's like the, the, the modern worship trinity of like Bethel music, elevation worship, and Hillsong. Like all wrapped into, all the Hillsongs, all wrapped into one. Like this is, this is Heman. He's the worship pastor setting the tone, another pun for all you dads out there, for the worship in Israel at the time. And then you've got the sons of Korah backing them up on tambourine and trumpet. And I want to tell you that the darkest, most hopeless sounding words in the entire Bible, that deepest, darkest valley come from within. It comes from the people that are supposed to set the tone for the spiritual pulse of Israel. It comes from the people who are supposed to be leading worship. And they are. This is how. Giving us words to use when we experience those valleys. I just want to say one more time, if you have not felt the closeness of God, the presence of God in your life in a very long time, if ever, I want to tell you one more time, you are not alone. We get into the content of the psalm itself now in verse 3, where Heman is now writing, and he says, 
and also singing, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Uh, next up in verse 8, we start to get a sense of like what it is that is plaguing him so much. Verse 8, you have taken me, he's talking to God now, protesting to God, lamenting to God, angry at God. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. Scholars, commentators, we think we think that there's some kind of like physical illness that's maybe infectious or contagious that is keeping him in isolation. Or, or maybe it's like Job. We heard about that last week. Job and, and everybody is blaming him for his own misfortune. It was like this spiritual infection that is now on him and his own fault. Whatever the case, people are pulling away and he's going, I have lost so much, everything. I cannot escape. And then, and then in, as, the, as the line as the song continues and we think, okay, but it's going to turn, right? It, it, it's going to provide some hope, right? Like it's going to give us something, right? And we get to the very last line and you can, it, you know, the scroll is thin. It's ending here. This is it. And you read this last line with hope and, and you read verse 18. You have taken from me, my friend and neighbor, darkness is my closest friend. Darkness and death are the themes of Psalm 88. And it stops there. No turn, no twist, no hope, no light, period. Death is mentioned, listen, in verse 3, twice in verse 5, in verse 6, verse 8, 10, 11, twice in verse 12, verse 15, and verse 16, and it ends with that notorious line, darkness is my closest friend. Picture that I'd like for you to have as we head into this and start to draw a few observations out of it is somebody tossing and turning in the middle of the night. Somebody whose fear or somebody whose anxiety is just wrapped all around them and captured them and, and, has, and has a hold of them. I want you to imagine somebody through the middle of the night tossing and turning, uh, unable to get comfortable, unable to drift away to sleep. That's the last thing. That's the only thing they really want at that moment, but they're unable to get it. They're telling their mind to, to shut off. Your job right now is to simply fall asleep. Do that body, do that mind, but it's still going a million miles an hour. That They're telling themselves seven hours till daylight. They're telling themselves four hours till daylight, three hours till the morning. You have two hours. If you fell asleep right now and there's just nothing they're getting no comfort they're tossing and turning they're alternating between cold sweat and hot flashes of fear and they just can't simply do the one thing in this world that they want is to simply just fall asleep they're tossing and they're turning all night long and they start to see the the glimmer the blink of the sun rising on the horizon they're saying no not now i'm not ready for that darkness is my closest friend. It is a bleak and hopeless experience. And right now, Heman, he, he's calling out, he's crying out using these words that I think many of us could benefit from. And he's going, no, no, where I am right now, God, you are absent. 
Darkness is my friend, not you. But just because we don't feel God doesn't mean he's not there. Before we go into the what do we do, I'd just like to highlight a couple of the whys. Why do we feel that way? When we go through those seasons, why do we feel like God has, has removed his presence away from us? And I just want to be very real. And I'd like for you to, if, if nothing else, just to look in the mirror and be very vulnerable with the person looking back at you. And to ask this question, is it possible that there is some kind of sin that is separating me off from God? And I don't, I don't want to ask this question in like um, vague kind of general terms. Uh, yes, since the fall of Adam and Eve, there has been a rift between God and us. And God is holy and he's good and he's righteous. He's there and we're not true. I'm not disputing that. But I want to ask more specifically, because of the power that sin has to separate us off from God, is there maybe something that like we're hanging on to that is keeping us from experiencing him? I did a high ropes course a while back, which I would recommend to nobody because it's terrible. The one thing that is terrible is at the one point, there's like this balance beam and I have almost no balance. Let's call it an inner ear thing to spare my dignity. But like, I'm trying to make it across, right? And you know, you're strapped in whatever, but fear of heights and like, this is not, that's not okay. You take little comfort in that little carabiner that you saw somebody tinkering with earlier. And, but there's like a rope hanging down, isn't there? That, like, thank goodness for that, okay, above. So it's a balance beam, but I've got like, I'm hanging on to this thing, right? But what do they, what do, they do, right? The designers, right? These, these cruel, cruel sadistic designers of this high ropes course, they put the ropes spaced just far enough apart, don't they? That to like edge your way through the balance beam, you have to let go of one rope in order to grab on to the next one and take a couple of like terrifying steps on your own to grab onto that rope. And what I'm like posing to you is that maybe it's possible that there is this this like sin in your life that you're keeping that you've held on to so long and so intensely, you're like white knuckling it around this thing that it almost feels like this rope is a part of you. And you're going like, I understand that to get to where I'd like to go, I need to let go of this thing I've been holding on to, but it feels like such a part of me, I'm not willing to let it go. And so the thing that's keeping you from getting to where you're going is the sin in your life that's separating you off. And God is saying, listen, no, no, no. we're going to get there, but you can't take this along with you. You got to let it go and grab onto it. And so I just, I want to ask for you in that God time in the word or when you're praying, maybe it's a late at night thing, maybe it's in the mirror looking forward, but just like ask him in that moment and say, God, is there something that I'm harboring, that I'm clinging onto that is preventing me from experiencing you in that moment? God, what might that be? Is it my pride? Is it this envy that keeps coming up? Why him and not me? Why them and not us is this this greed is this the gluttony is it the is it the whatever it is just ask him because sin has a way of separating us off from you talk to to couples who've experienced 
infidelity in the marriage. And even if there's initial forgiveness, regardless, it will be a long time till trust is rebuilt. And it could be years, potentially decades, before intimacy is found. I think that when we violate his commands, when we turn our backs on him, when we cheat on him, I think that intimacy is lost. And he's saying, you can't hang on to it. You gotta move forward. It's scary. I know. Maybe it's the sin that's separating you away from God. You know, I think sometimes in our culture, I think it's also that we sensationalize it. We sensationalize our relationship with God. And I mean that in like the technical way that we use our senses a lot and we expect God to like speak through that. So what do we do? You know, things that we can see, things that we can touch, things that we can smell. These are the things that we, we trust and that we chase and that we pursue. And so what we want from God is a feeling that he is so close to us and we don't trust anything that's not the, the feeling of God. And I don't, wanna, I don't want you to walk out of here and say like God doesn't act through our feelings. And he's a big God, he can do what he wants. But I'm also saying he's big enough not to be constricted to that. And so when we sensationalize, when we look at it and we say, listen, if, if I only trust what I can feel not only are we missing something, it's also an extraordinarily dangerous way to live. True story, a woman comes up to me. At the time, she was in her early 20s. And she's in a relationship. She's dating a guy. He's not good. He's badgering her to have a baby with him not married, that's a red flag. He's physically and emotionally abusive toward her. If you've known people in that environment, you're like, why don't you just get out? It's harder than that. But by God's grace, she summons up the wisdom and says, it's time, I need to get out. She goes to worship at her church that morning. After worshiping, there's a prayer deal. She goes back to the prayer deal people and she's just about to ask them to pray for her courage to go ahead and break up with this guy once and for all. And as she walks up to the table, before she starts speaking, the person says to her, and she says, I, wait, I just received a prophetic word from the Lord. Stay with who you're with. And because we are a sensational people, that must be a reliable thing. She did. And it was years of pain and heartache for her and everyone around her. I wanna look at that and say, we are a sensational people. And if you're looking for a word from the Lord, listen, listen. He spoke clearly and consistently in the word. And one of the things that he spoke in Ephesians 5 is that if you're wondering if he's the one that you should spend the rest of your life with, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If he doesn't remind you of Jesus in those words, Jesus spoke once and for all. It's in black and white. And if you spring for it, you could get it in red letters too. Like he spoke. We're chasing our feelings and we're often chasing these sensations from thing to thing. And what we're missing the whole time is that, no, no, God, the most clear and the most consistent way that God speaks today is in his word. That's why we need to get into it. That's why we say experience God daily, even when it's rote, even when it's boring, even when you open it up to something and you feel like it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't speak to you. That's okay. Maybe it'll speak to you when you need it to be reminded of it. Remember it anyway. Way. Read it, pray, listen to him. He speaks clearly and consistently in the world, in the word. Sometimes we're guilty, aren't we? We're guilty of chasing the sensations at the detriment to how he already spoke to us. But that's not the issue. That's not the deal with Heman. That's not the deal with the sons of Koral when they're writing this. Uh, we don't get much of a sensation that that's, that's maybe for us, that's not for them. I think that what's for them is that God is trying to draw them in, is that God is trying to draw them closer. And God is often doing that with us. He's trying to draw us in. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that, that deprivation of something creates desire? That like, you, you, don't, you don't drink about a half gallon of water unless you're, you're really, really thirsty. You don't eat too much unless you're really, really hungry or they're nachos in front of you. Deprivation, going without nachos for a week, that will make you consume more of them, or at least for me. Deprivation creates desire. And I think God knows that. And that's one of the tools that he uses to say, listen, I, I will always chase you. I will always pursue you. I love you to death and back. But you know what? I don't want to be the only one chasing you. I want you to chase me. That's the nature. That's the key of having a relationship with each other. I will always chase you, but I want to chase, I want you to chase me as well. So I'm not pulling back my presence, even though it might feel like it. Just because you don't feel my presence doesn't mean I'm absent. I'm still with you, but you might not feel it all the time because I want you to chase me. One of my favorite little half chapters in the Bible is Jeremiah 29. And I love this so much because like we write it in the graduation cards of like graduating seniors. And it's like grandma, right? Like, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And it's like, seal that up, send it off with a $20 bill. Like, thank you, grandma. Like, I love that so much. That's so good. Jeremiah 29, 10, the literal one verse ahead of time, God says, if, essentially, if you're old enough to read this, you should know it'll be 70 years before you get out of exile. If you're old enough to understand this, you're old enough to know you'll die here in exile, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It changes grandma's context there, doesn't it? Maybe she doesn't like you that much. No, I don't know. That's, it's, it's harsh words. It's so harsh. But, but then a, another couple of verses later, Jeremiah 29, 13, God speaks to, through Jeremiah to, I think, all of us. And he goes, but when you seek me, even in the exile, even in the valley, 
When you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Seek me. Deprivation creates desire. Seek me. I'm going to come back to this tossing and turning. Psalm 88, darkness is my closest friend. We come back to this one and we just see this picture of somebody alternating between hot flashes of fear and cold sweats. Somebody who has not slept all night long and dawn is breaking Where is God? I haven't felt him in a long time, tossing and turning all night. The anxiety is just crushing him. What happens? Why doesn't he finish? Why doesn't he turn the upward? Why doesn't he make the twist? Why doesn't he provide his his hope? Why does he just drop his pen and stop writing? And I think maybe, and I can't prove this, but I think maybe he fell asleep which is such a gift in that moment that maybe God gave him just enough grace to do the one thing he needed to do in that moment is just to drift off. And isn't that offensive? Doesn't God hate that? When we've all been in that place where we're up late, tossing and turning at night, we've all been in that place. If you follow Jesus long enough, you will too, where you're praying to God and you never said amen and you never said see you later, but all of a sudden it's morning and your alarm is going off and you're like, shoot, I did it again. Doesn't God hate this? Isn't, isn't that insulting to God? Is it insulting to the mom of a newborn baby girl? when she just falls asleep right there in her arms. I don't think that Heman felt the presence of God. I think God was still holding him. I don't think that baby feels necessarily the presence of mom, but she's holding him. If you don't feel the presence of God this week, listen, that's okay. He's still holding on to you. Seek him when it's time. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together as a community. Our gracious God, we want to seek you out this week. As you promised us that when we seek you with our whole hearts, we will find you eventually. You'll make yourself known eventually. In your timing, in your wisdom, God, for right now, we toss, we turn. We don't know where you are. You seem distant. You seem cold. We don't feel you, but it doesn't mean that you're not around. It may just mean that we're resting in your arms. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.